How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's economy, energy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're looking at the future of automobiles in California and the fuels that move them. After years of litigation and conflict, car makers, federal and state regulators, and environmentalists struck an agreement recently on rules requiring all new cars sold in the United States to reach an average of 54 miles a gallon by 2025. A related California agreement is expected to put over a million cars on the road that emit no tailpipe emissions. In 2003, auto companies and regulators killed similar rules, like Saga chronicled in the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? Does this new deal mark a new era of detente between companies in Detroit and Tokyo and Stuttgart and policymakers in Washington and Sacramento? How will it affect auto prices and the range of vehicles available to car buyers? For the next hour, we'll discuss the road ahead with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and we are joined by four experts, a top regulator, an environmentalist, and representatives of two auto companies. Shad Balch is Manager for Environment and Energy Communications at General Motors. Roland Huang is Director of Transportation Programs at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Mary Nichols is Chair of the California Air Resources Board, the main regulator of greenhouse gases in California and, in fact, the country. And Chris Paulson is VP of Strategy and Business Development at Coda Automotive, a startup automaker here in California. Please welcome them to Climate One. Come on. Mary Nichols, let's begin with you. Um, there's a bunch of new rules passed re- recently. They're very complex. But if you could simplify for us, what are they and what's their significance? Well, uh, at our board meeting in January of 2012, the Air Resources Board unanimously passed a whole series of rules that we call the Advanced Clean Car Regulations. And basically what they do is for the first time in California's long and I think rather distinguished history of regulating automobiles, we've pulled together all the main strands of what we're trying to do. So we've set tailpipe standards on into the future for all the conventional ingredients of smog, as well as for uh, the new pollutants that we have been focusing on for the last couple of years, which are the greenhouse gases. Uh, We've also put in place a, a mandate, a specific sales requirement for all the major companies that sell uh passenger cars and light trucks in California, that they will have to meet uh, new and more ambitious targets for uh, how many zero-emission vehicles they will sell. And then lastly, we have a requirement on the oil companies or the people who sell transportation fuel in California that will require that when we get to the numbers that we think we're going to be seeing fairly soon, uh, that they will be there with the fuels that the buyers need to have in order for this to be a successful market. So we're trying a mix of 
direct mandates on the on the auto companies. Um, they've come a tremendously long way since we started on this, uh, and mandates for fuels, but also we're trying to build in incentives into this with more use of uh, flexibilities, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that as we talk further. But basically, this is now taking us into the 2025 time frame with all the rules in place so that everybody who plays in the transportation market in California will know what's coming and can plan. Chad Balsh, that sounds like a lot of rules. <laughs> it is what? a lot of rules, for sure. <laughs> what does GM think about that? Well, I think uh, we're, we, we embrace it. We're, we're, for the first time, we're, we're not in disagreement with the regulation. And I think the most significant reason is that there is, is harmonization between what the state is going to do at the local level here with what the federal government wants to do. So that allows us to do what we do best, and that is to innovate. And combine that with the cultural change at General Motors, and we're going to hit it full steam ahead. I mean, we're, we're going to build cars and trucks that use less gasoline, if not no gasoline at all. So you're fully on board with this. Let's get uh, Chris Paulson here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> How often does that happen? <laughs> Chris Paulson, how's it going to affect pure electric car makers such as Coda? Well, I, the way I would describe it is that uh, the work that Marion and Cal ARB has done has really paved the way for the companies like ours to exist in the first place. You know, we, in a lot of ways, we are uh, a product of the who killed electric car movement in the first place. Um, the uh, the electric car companies and startup companies like ours are here uh, to develop new products that now have a chance to exist because the demand is there and now the regulation matches that demand. Um, I of course think that more could be done. <laughs> uh, you know we want to uh, be able to continually innovate and deliver new product. Uh, we're a technology company first and foremost, and uh, the regulation allows a company like ours to to uh, to be there. So you said more could be done. You think that these rules should have gone further? Always. I mean, when, when all you make are zero-emission vehicles, of course, we think that more can be done. Um, the, but I think it's important, though, that all of the, the OEMs are on board with, with this legislation. Original equipment make, make car makers. Yeah, the, all of the car makers. Yeah, okay. in, in, in D.C., when the announcement was made, most of the, of the car makers were there, which I think is a big step. Roland Huang, this is a new day. You've been, you know, the NRDC, you know, does a lot of things to address climate change. Put this in the context in terms of other accomplishments, other policies. How big a deal is this? Uh, this is a huge deal. This is a really big deal. When you combine this latest round of standards, 2017 to 2025, with the first round of standards of the Obama administration, California, and the automakers also negotiated back in 2009, this is the single biggest step in a generation to get our country off of oil and cut carbon pollution. This is a big deal. It'll cut your fuel bill in half, and by 2030, it'll cut oil imports by a third, and it'll cut the equivalent in terms of carbon pollution of 90 million cars. This is a big deal. So I want to get a little bit about how did this happen, because just a few years ago, uh, regulators in, in Sacramento would announce some rules. General Motors would sick their lawyers. The auto companies would sue. And here we have this kind of kumbaya moment up here. Um, <laughs> how, how did this, what changed? How did this happen? 
Mary Nichols? Uh, well, I'll start, I guess. Um, I think it was a number of forces coming into play at the exact same time. I, I want to give credit going back a few years to uh, leadership in California, particularly to uh, then-Assemblymember Fran Pavley, who authored a bill ordering California to set tailpipe emission standards for greenhouse gases. This was a wild and crazy idea at the time, except to a few people. But um, as it turned out, it did play a critical role in moving everybody's thinking in a different direction. At the same time, the U.S. Supreme Court was telling the Bush administration they had to take action against greenhouse gases. They couldn't um, ignore them, that they were a form of air pollution and they were going to have to do something. In turn, I would say some very uh, thoughtful people in the auto industry started thinking about whether there wasn't a way that they could embrace this concept rather than uh, simply keep on fighting um, what seemed to be constant battles in the political arena where um, nobody was really getting anywhere. And they saw a chance, as, uh, as Shad said, to try to get California and the federal government into alignment. And at the same time, the country elected a new president, and President Obama made it clear that when he went into office, he said this during the campaign, and practically the day after he was elected, he started working on setting national standards for vehicles. So I think the handwriting was on the wall. The car companies had been through terrible economic uh, crisis. There was an issue about the future and how it was all going to play out. And everybody was ready for once, and sometimes it does take a crisis, to think differently, to do things a little bit differently and maybe take some risks of sitting down and talking. Chad Balch, how did you think it came about? Yeah, for, for GM's perspective, I mean, if you look at the old business model, it just wasn't working. And I think we also underestimated... Oh, it was working while gas prices were low. And then 2008 hit... We, we had no car that would, would compete in the marketplace, and our, our dealers were watching people run into competitor showrooms. That will never happen again. We now have a car out on the market that gets best-in-class fuel economy, and it unseated two of our top competitors. So we're back in that game for sure. But I think um, the, the business model wasn't working, and so it required a cultural shift. And we underestimated the image and reputation aspect of the whole situation as well. People did not want to buy one of our products because we were we had a history of fighting and looking for you know any alternative besides building better cars. So with the cultural change, it makes it, there's a business case for it. There's such there seems to be such a public hatred towards petroleum-based fuel that that why not you know build a product that uses anything but? And so that makes sense. We're going to leverage that. And I think that that is going to help shape where we go in the future in terms of automotive technology. Is General Motors playing along here because taxpayers own a quarter of the company? Is that part of the process? Well, certainly. Absolutely. I mean, of course, we're grateful for having a second chance. And we have to – there is added pressure to make sure that that we deliver um, not only what everybody expects but what they don't expect. So while the regulatory framework is fantastic – from our standpoint and from the innovators in the company, we want to do better. That'll give us our competitive edge. We don't just want to meet the standards, but we want to do more. Roland Huang, anything to add to this in terms of how this shift came about? Yeah, Roland absolutely. Um, I think you can look at three major factors which remade both the economic, the political, um, as, as well as the legal environment, which all made this happen. Uh, high oil prices started to go up in 2005 and reshape the whole economic business climate, as Shad is referring to. Supreme Court ruling in 2007 
we had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to get the authority for California as well as US, US EPA to regulate carbon dioxide as an air pollutant. And the third issue, of course, is California leadership. And I think as Mary's mentioned, uh, in 2002, California established the very first law in the entire nation to start setting standards for carbon pollution. That set into motion all kinds of things. When you combine it with the legal as well as the high oil prices, it all kind of came together to a situation where it just makes business sense and it makes good environmental policy sense to move forward with these kind of groundbreaking regulations. Shad Bolt from General Motors, you said there's a deep, you said hatred of petroleum. There's a history of romance, collusion between the oil industry and the auto industry. Are you... Uh, you guys on the skids? Uh, trust me. <laughs> I mean, they're... On the rocks? You know, the, the oil industry didn't do us any favors back in when we went through bankruptcy and they were making billions in record profits. So by no means. I mean, um, they don't scratch our back and we're not scratching theirs at all. We want to build cars and trucks that run on anything but petroleum. Okay, and, and one of this new package of deals calls for hydrogen to be put into place. This clean fuel outlet rule requires energy companies to provide hydrogen. So let's talk about that. The car makers want to make hydrogen-based cars for why? Well, we've invested a lot of, a significant amount of resources into developing hydrogen fuel cell technology. Still, it's a very expensive vehicle, and it's probably several years out, but it does... It's been several years out for about 40 years. And that's why I will not give you a date when we will start selling these cars. Uh, one, because the infrastructure is not in place, although we do now have the, the backstop to make that happen through the clean fuels outlet regulation. But um, hydrogen fuel cells offer a, a, a way to apply electric vehicle technology in larger applications, uh, trucks and SUVs and, and things like that. So that is going to play a significant role as we work towards the states and the federal government's role of getting off of petroleum-based energy for cars. Mary Nichols, the oil companies think that hydrogen's being rammed down their throat, that they're being made to produce something that, that's not economically viable, there's no market for, the heavy hand of government coming down on them, and they're considering litigation against this rule. I'd like to get your perspective on why force hydrogen. Well, uh, first of all, we would much prefer to work something out with the oil companies where they would work with the state to help us get a relatively small amount of fuel that we think we're going to need to tide us over for the few years while people are beginning to see some of these fuel cell vehicles out there on the roads, get used to them because they have wonderful driving characteristics. And then we think that once there is a market, uh, there won't be any problem getting oil companies to want to jump in and sell the fuel. It's really a transitional issue. And I think we're in a very similar position with respect to the fuel cells as we were with the electric battery cars maybe a decade ago, which is that the technology exists. Those who can see the future know it's coming. But to get to that point where people can see enough money in it to make it worth their while to actually invest um, takes a little longer. And that's where the government gets involved both in the form of mandates and of incentives, because there are other ways to uh, try to build this market while we're getting ready for um, there to be enough out there so that people can see what it does. I think it's really important to underscore the fact that companies like General Motors and most of the other major companies that are manufacturing vehicles now 
do have very active programs with uh, fuel cells because there are certain applications for the heavier vehicles, for longer distance travel that we still don't see uh, how the plug-in vehicle is exactly going to meet all that demand. But I think if there's one thing that many players in this field have learned in the last years of debate, it's that there doesn't have to be one fuel and one vehicle, that for the foreseeable future, there's going to be a mix of different kinds of fuels and technologies out there. And it's very exciting to see them all now uh, beginning to bloom, but they're not all at exactly the same stage. Mary Nichols is chair of the California Air Resources Board. Uh, Chris Paulson, you make, uh, Coda makes electric cars. Do you have a dog in this fight about hydrogen, good thing, bad thing, or do you not care? Well, the, you know, we're a small company, you know, so we don't spend a lot of time worrying about things that we're not working on today. Uh, and I would hate to disagree with Mary, but she said electric cars are coming. They're here. I I own one. I just bought one. I love it. I agree. I agree. If I said that, I was uh, behind the times. Our car is in production today, uh, and it's coming soon to the Bay Area. We have a dealer that we just signed in the Bay Area. Um, We're going to begin to sell cars to customers that are ready. Uh, And I think you'll see the costs come down very quickly in electric cars because there are companies that only care about electric cars and are focused 100% on EV technology, companies like Coda. Uh, I think that in the long term, I totally agree with Mary, you'll see a lot of different technologies develop. I think electric cars are going to have a big place because of the inherent fun of driving an electric car. It's different. You know, the, the, it's quiet. It's a, it's a really aggressive drive. You get instant torque off the line, which you don't get in, unless you buy a high-end sports car. Uh, it's a really different experience, and I think consumers are going to make the switch themselves. I bought an electric car last month, and I can't get my kids to get in the gasoline car. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like it's old, it's stained. Dad is loud and smelly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> fun, it's dirty. Roland Hong, anything to add to that on hydrogen? I mean, does the environmentalist care to see hydrogen as a problem because it takes a lot of energy to produce hydrogen? Well, I mean, let's step back a little bit from the hydrogen question and talk about the oil industry problem. We're having a problem with the oil industry they are not willing to move forward with solutions. What, Sh- what Shad is talking about in General Motors and the auto industry, and we're talking about with Coda, is an industry that's reinventing itself and moving forward. It has a different relationship to government standards and regulations. It's on board with that. It's a different relationship with innovation. Yet, the oil industry is a um, highly profitable industry, yet at every step of the way, it seems to be fighting and fighting and fighting to open up its market to innovation and competitors. Well, you might, there might be a good reason for that from, a, from their business perspective. But the problem is whether it's hydrogen stations or whether it's something called the California Low-Carbon Fuel Standard or whether it's called Keystone XL, you see an industry which is continuing trying to fight new requirements to provide you with greater choices to get us off of oil, and continuing to push quite heavily to keep us essentially addicted to oil. And we should note that these rules call for automobiles to basically increase their efficiency 100%, by, and oil companies are fighting reduction greenhouse gases of just 10%. So the autos are doing 100, and the oil companies are fighting 10. Is that accurate? Yes. That That's okay. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the cost. Are these new... C- are uh, these mandates going to drive up the cost of automobiles? 
Mary Nichols, has the Air Resources Board done some work on... ARB and also US EPA and DOT all had to come together around some numbers. It's required as part of the regulatory process to make predictions about what any new regulation will add to the status quo. We We don't look at the benefits economically. We only look at the cost. And the cost of regulation will add to the price of a new vehicle uh, on the average, you know, down the road, uh, no question about it. Uh, the the numbers spread out over the whole uh, vehicle are a couple thousand dollars, which will be made back, uh, fortunately for the consumer, uh, within four years. So in the lifetime of an original buyer, um, they will receive the economic benefit of any additional cost that they might pay for a vehicle. Uh, I think most people are pretty skeptical about these numbers, and I don't blame them because uh, the history of competition is that companies want to sell cars. They will find ways to bring the initial cost down. And, of course, the meantime, the benefit of a more fuel-efficient car is going to be there uh, no matter what. But uh, we're still experiencing, I would say, some pushback from the dealers who always view anything that might increase the sticker price on a car as a bad thing. And so we're still having discussions with them about this because um, they're they're opposed to any type of uh, mandate that could add anything to the original sticker price. But what we've seen in the last few years, and I think we're seeing it right now, is that customers are finally beginning to recognize that there's an actual benefit to a car that has greater fuel economy. And so they are, it used to be, you know, a mantra that you'd hear all the time from the auto industry, uh, people who don't care about fuel economy, they won't pay for fuel economy. And I think we're seeing that that's not true anymore. The price of gasoline has gone up. Chad Balch, General Motors, prices will go up. You're okay with that? Do you, do you say how much? Well, this is the exciting part for GM is that now that we have right-sided our business and we are making money and don't have the debt service, we're reinvesting our profits into R&D. Last year, we filed 1,100 patents, and have, that is the most for, any, for R&D across any sector. So we're going to – we see this as a challenge, for sure, to keep the cost down, but this is going to give us a, probably an advantage, a competitive advantage – it will initially. I mean, there will be technologies that, that add to the price of the car. The 2012 Volt dropped a grand from the 2011 Volt. So we're already going downhill. But your dealers are not happy. You don't control them. They're independent business owners. But they're pushing back. They're not happy about this uh, deal you disagreed to, to, which could lift prices a little bit. Well, yeah, and, and they probably don't also have the insight into the manufacturing process that we do. They don't, you know, they're, the dealers are probably used to historical, old GM way of thinking. And it's... It's, it's different now, all the way down into the dealer body, too. So you have to convince not only the customers and the public, but your own business partners that That's correct. this new GM is, is really different. To That's say. correct. Uh, let's talk about jobs. Is this going to, what's this going to do to job creation? Is this, is this going to have any impact on jobs at General Motors? Are you going to hire some people or, you know, is this going to be, what's the job equation? Without a doubt, this is going to add jobs. We've, we've already seen that happen pretty substantially. I mean, the industry is, has, added hundreds of thousands of jobs, or about 100,000 jobs, I guess, uh, in the last few years. So that is going to happen, and it's, it's because of, of new technologies that are coming. We just opened up a plant in, in Orion, Michigan, that builds the subcompact Chevy Sonic, and it's the only subcompact car built in this country. And we did it through employing efficiencies in the assembly process. That's 1,300 jobs in this country for a car that no competitor can build here. 
and you're going to make money on that car, or is that just to please regulators who are sitting next to you? We're absolutely <laughs> going to make money on that car. Yeah, we wouldn't do it if we weren't going to make money on that car. I wish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Roland Huang, jobs impact? Yeah, jobs impact. Let's talk about what happened in 2011. Highest average gasoline prices on record. Gasoline prices were up, yet profits from the U.S. auto industry, up. Job hiring, up. And fuel efficiency in January is at the highest level ever in the history of the United States. So we can see that jobs, profits, fuel economy, they all can go hand in hand. Now, if you're a consumer and you're looking at a vehicle in 2025, the great thing about it is that if, if most people finance their vehicles. The great thing about it, almost as soon as you drive that car off a lot, that vehicle will pay for itself. It's quite remarkable that the additional car payments will be offset by the fuel savings. So that's why we believe this, this, uh, these higher standards will just be a, a, a tremendous boost and will continue to allow the U.S. auto industry to thrive because they'll be innovating and providing the kind of automobiles that the uh, U.S. auto consumer wants. The number one attribute, according to surveys from J.D. Powers, um, which is an industry auto consultant, uh, Ford Motor Company has released a poll recently, um, and others, um, showing that the number one attribute that new car buyers want is fuel efficiency. We had some reporters here recently who predicted $5 gas this summer for a number of reasons, Iran, the Strait of Hormuz, or some dynamics inside the oil company, uh, in the oil industry. 2008, uh, oil, uh, gas hit $4 a gallon, and Americans went nuts, and politicians were running around. What happens at $5? You guys thought about that, Mary Nick? His business plan goes very well. Coda, get, Coda is very happy. Well, yeah. I was going to say, I think we should uh, let our friend from Coda say maybe a few words about the multiplier effect of EVs, too, because it's not just about uh, building them and, or selling them. It's also about everything else that goes with it. No, that's right. The, Technology. And when I think about the and, and look closely at the, the discussions about increasing costs of, of fuel-efficient cars, I actually completely disagree. We're making a car for much less than the cost of, of cars that are made today that are less efficient. Uh, and we have plans to build several new cars that will cost a lot less. So wh- um, what is a new Coda going to cost? Well, we're launching the car at 37, 37,000, but with, after uh, the, t- the tax incentives, you can get it down below, below 20, um, below 30, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, so the, yeah, that's the, and when you, uh, when you take into account the, the benefit of the cost of electricity versus the cost of gas, even at $3 a gallon, let alone five, it pays off very quickly. Uh, and we're going to, the cars we launch in the future, our target is to be competitive in transaction price with a, with a gas vehicle. Uh, we know we can do it and we can do it for less than, than cars are being produced today. Uh, and that will, uh, in my view, that totally changes the equation. So when someone goes into a, a local Northern California dealer and decides, should I buy a EV or should I buy a gas car, both at a similar cost, knowing that I can drive it for 10 cents a mile or less versus 15 cents or more for a gas car. Chris Paulson is Vice President of Strategy at Coda Automotive. Our other guests today at Climate One are Mary Nichols, Chair of the California Air Resources Board, Roland Huang, Director of Transportation Programs at NRDC, and Shad Balch from General Motors. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk a little bit more about the technology that's going to be required to develop. Some of this technology seems to be here today, but to meet these ambitious goals, what other technology is going to have to be developed, and is that sort of incremental technology or breakthrough technology? Shad Balch, I mean, is it on I, the I think it's a little bit of both. I think for us the, the, the biggest um, pot of gold is electrification. 
that seems to be where we where we want to head and put most of our resources. But there are several forms of electrification, hybrid, extended range electricity like, like the Volt, uh, hydrogen fuel cell. So we're applying the technology, the battery chemistries that we're using right now in Volt and other cars into different platforms. So like the Buick with the new ESS program, um, those sorts of technologies will spread out among different vehicles and different platforms. Um, but there's also a place for biofuels, for, for diesel to some extent, and it's got to be that, that mix. It won't be just one technology that wins at the end of the day. So a lot of things. And Roland Huang, also the efficiency of the internal combustion engine. Yeah, I think what's remarkable when you look at the Air Resources Board and the EPA and the Tartan Transportation Analysis of how we cut carbon pollution in half by 2025 from today's vehicles, it's quite remarkable that what they're, what they're forecasting is 80% of the fleet will still be conventional gasoline vehicle technology, albeit very sophisticated. 15% will be hybrids like the Toyota Prius type hybrid. Um, and only 3% is required to be pure battery electric or a plug-in type vehicle. I think those battery electrics and plug-ins will do much better than 3%, don't get me wrong. But I think what we're finding out is when you set a standard on the auto industry, or any industry for that matter, um, what they do is they innovate. They figure out ways to do better and, and do it at lower cost. And so we're, a year ago, I would have been... I, I would have not believed that the internal combustion engine could, could go this far, getting more miles out of a single gallon with an internal combustion engine vehicle, albeit it's going to have a turbocharger on it. It's going to have less cylinders. It's going to have variable valve timing and, and, and direct injection. It's probably going to be mated to a 7, 8, or even 9-speed transmission. But all these things are relatively incremental, and that's the bulk of what we'll see in 2025. But because of the incentives uh, built into these programs, both California and the federal incentives, there will also be, I believe, a flourishing of innovation that will pull forward into the marketplace uh, uh, technologies like the Volt and, and the Coda vehicle. Yeah. Right, We've hired hundreds of people, 250 people today work in Los Angeles, and uh, we have a very aggressive plan to, to expand that people who are focused on our core technology. We're here talking about, in a sense, a sliver. It's the most glamorous sliver (laughs) in the passenger cars, but we're talking about really transforming the entire transportation system. Uh, California, and actually the country as a whole, are in the business of moving around things. We import, we export, we have big ports, we have railroads and rail yards, and they are at the crux of our pollution problems. They're also major drivers of our economy. Um, we have to figure out how to get a balance going here where um, we get these ultra-clean and ultra-efficient vehicles and transform the whole market for these vehicles and at the same time also recognize that there are limits on them because we need to put more things and more people into uh, mass transit. We need to put more goods onto railroads and, uh, and then we're going to need to electrify the whole thing and then we're going to have to generate the electricity renewably. So we're talking about a gigantic economic transformation that's going on that we're just really on the edge of in this country, but it's all connected. It's just starting with the passenger cars. And will it happen fast enough for the climate? Well, Jim Hansen says it's already too late. Um, there are experts who believe that we've already reached a point of no return. And certainly we see the effects of climate change happening today. But I guess I'm of the glass half full variety. Um, I believe that 
we can innovate our way out of our disasters, um, relying on the excellent technology that comes to the fore if we can also get the policies and the incentives right. And as I think you've been hearing uh, from this panel, at least, we feel like we're finally moving in the right direction. And we've been talking here, the mileage standards, 54 miles a gallon, that's a national thing. The other things we've been talking about are just California. Uh, many waves starting California, move, move east. So let's talk a little bit about the national connection here. Is, what's gonna ha- is any of this going to kind of have an effect on the, the country's auto market, Shad Bulge? Most definitely. Uh, California is by far and away the most important market for us. We have the most market share to gain, and we also have the ideal customer base here. And I think that is, that is sort of the missing equation of, you know, in terms of whether or not this is going to happen in time. We have a great, you know, strange bedfellows up here, but who's missing is the consumer. They have to buy into this. They have to be willing to understand the technology and the need and be willing to, to buy it. Right now, there are all alternatives to buying a car that runs on, on gasoline. And if they're not picking it, we have a problem. There's also some confusion. In fact, General Motors has run ads of a Chevy Volt at a gas station kind of explaining, well, wait, it's electric, but you put gasoline in it, right? There's so many different flavors of cars oh, these yeah. days that people are a little confused. It is very confusing. And, and the problem is, or the issue is, the reality is, is that you buy a car based on the way it makes you feel. It's the most irrational purchase decision you'll ever make. So trying to inject some, some rational reasoning into why you should buy a clean car doesn't resonate as much as we want it to. It just it doesn't. I've got it. We've got to talk about the performance and and the way that electric car is different than a gasoline conventional powered car. Auto companies spend huge amounts of money, you know, making this an emotional purchase, right? You're right. the master at this, right? <laughs> we try. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's talk about who buys a Volt now. Are they environmentalists or technologists? Technologists. They, they're self-described technologists. And they're also, 98% of them are more than satisfied with their car. So the, the customer satisfaction rate with the Volt is higher than any other car out there. But the Volt has become a political punching bag. Has that hurt sales? It has, most definitely. I mean, it's the antics that were going on in D.C. around that car were just... Unbelievable. Should clarify, uh, the CEO of General Motors went to testify before Congress. Right, about the battery investigations and things like that. And, um, we will, we probably haven't lost sales entirely. We probably just delayed them a bit as people realize that what they saw was just overly exaggerated. We think those customers will come back. So okay. it's just a matter of getting through this issue. But Roland Juan, let's talk about, you know, California to national. Is some of the things we're talking about here going to affect the, the national market? Yeah, well, absolutely. And in fact, uh, the California Clean Car Program has been adopted by a number of other states, particularly in the Northeast and in the Northwest. And so immediately when you talk about the one million or so plug-in electric vehicles and fuel cell vehicles that will be in California by 2025, multiply that by a factor of, say, three for the rest of the nation that has California's uh, standards also. So a huge effect. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the whole issue of, of, of can we go fast enough and, you know, what, can we, what, what, can we, what lessons can we draw out of what just happened? What just happened in the auto industry reinventing itself almost within a blink of an eye, within the last five years, I would say, huge breakthroughs have occurred and we have, come, have a coming together in a political process, which, quite frankly, as we know from the General Motors uh, Volt situation in Congress, uh, the whole issue of, of how we move this, co- uh, this country forward on environmental policy has taken a real poisonous atmosphere. 
But you can look at what California did. You can look at what General Motors did. You can look at what UAW, who also is a big supporter of these standards now, as well as environmentalists and consumer groups and energy security groups. You see a coming together in a process. You see government at its best, government working to make progress. And that's something which is a very short supply in Washington, especially with the General Motors Volt situation investigation. When you have Bob Lutz out there telling what he, in his own words... Let's say who Bob Lutz is, vice chairman of General Motors. The former vice chairman of, of, of General Motors who started the General Motors Volt program, probably not to solve global warming, as we know, <laughs> from his opinions of such. But he is out there right now in the public saying the right-wing media, Bill O'Reilly and others, need to back off from attacking the General Motors vault, from politicizing the vault, from politicizing progress to getting off of oil, and from our perspective also, of course, uh, uh, solving climate. It is hurting jobs. I mean, Shad has said, talked about the vault sales being hurt. That means jobs, and that means jobs in Michigan, and that means jobs in uh, all other parts of this country including California, who is dependent upon this country moving forward with clean energy. Roland Huang is the Director of Transportation Programs at NRDC. Our other guests today are Mary Nichols from the California Air Resources Board, Chris Paulson from Coda Automotive, and Shad Balch from General Motors. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, We've been talking about 54 miles a gallon, but in reality, people are going to get, what, mid-40s or something like that? We're not really going to get 54 at the end of the day. Mary Nichols, right? Isn't there a little... The, Inflation uh, in those numbers? Well, the numbers are the numbers as shown on the tests that are required by the Department of Transportation, which sets the CAFE standards. So you have to have apples to apples. You've got to compare test results to test results. And every time you try to mess around with the test, then you open up another whole can of worms. Uh, but it's always been the case that what people experience in the real world of driving is not exactly what's shown on the on – the, um, federal test procedure, and um, that's going to continue to be true on into the future, although I will say that we're seeing that, well, two things. First of all, um, clearly there are things that a person can do in the way that they drive their car that can get them closer to those targeted numbers, and people are becoming more interested as fuel uh, becomes more expensive, and the car companies themselves have done some things to try to educate their customers about how, in the real world of driving, they can actually experience the optimum fuel economy, which never used to be an issue for much of anybody, except a few sort of cranks who actually cared about, you know, how their cars performed. Um, But the other thing is this, again, is part of the push in the direction of the zero emission vehicles, the advanced clean cars, is that if you're starting to actually get interested in these problems and you start to look into what the technologies are that are available and what you can do to break our dependence on imported oil or to uh, get a greater degree of improvement in air quality, whatever your motivation may be, if it's health or or just being part of what's going on out there in the world – it's going to lead you in the direction of an advanced hybrid, a plug-in vehicle, or maybe checking out one of those fuel cell vehicles. And the, these zero-emission cars are supposed to be 15% of all cars sold in California by that's 2020. That's a floor. That's a floor. That's not a ceiling. In other words, that's the mandated uh, requirements on the major companies uh, who can either make those sales out of their own production or they can buy credits from folks like Coda here if they if they don't want to make them themselves. 
Uh, but I think that what we have an obligation to do, and I'm very excited about the opportunities here, is to make this a successful market. And it's not just about selling the cars. It's also about making it easier for people to bring them home, easy to get the chargers installed, easier to find fueling, having an app that you can download onto your smartphone that tells you where the charging stations are, any place you're going. And these are all things that, um, you know, collectively cities, counties, local building departments, uh, the utilities, everybody's going to have to get together and work on this if we're really going to hit the numbers that we think we should be seeing. As a new EV owner, also, not only is there a charging station there, but is it available? Can I reserve it? Is yes. it going to be, a, you know, am I going to drive there and find oh, someone right? else parked there yeah. and I'm, you know, running out of juice? Oh, um, we're going to bring our microphone up here and invite your participation. Again, if you're on this side of the audience, please go on, on, on that side of the, uh, um, and the line will start with Jane Ann back there. And, uh, yeah, if you're on this side, please go out that door and the line forms at that door over there. Um, we're talking about clean cars at Climate One. Uh, let's put these new rules in perspe- international perspective. How do America's and California's new efficiency standards compare with the rest of the world? Roland Huang, are we uh, catching up with Europe, um, head of Europe now? In terms of actual standards on the books, it's, it's quite remarkable. Uh, California and the U.S. can now quite pr- proudly say we have the strictest clean car standards for CO2 or fuel economy that's on the books. However, the rest of the world is not standing still. The European and the Chinese market and the North American market, those are the three big markets now globally. Europeans are moving forward with a standard by 2020, which will probably be about low 60 miles per gallon by 2020. Um, that'll probably happen in the next year or two. And in China, of course, has a tremendous problem of not having a lot of oil and uh, now having an explosive growth in its car market. And they are going quite heavily into electrification as well as stronger fuel economy and CO2-type standards. So we're ahead for the moment. Uh, but these other major markets and the Chinese are investing huge amounts of money in the electric vehicles. So we can't stand still. Innovation is the key to keeping the U.S. auto industry competitive. Chad Balch, global automaker, do you see it the same way? Yeah, and we're going to be ready for it. I mean, we have China is, is probably one of our uh, second most important market for us. It's definitely the largest. So we're going to be their solution, too. And we'll be able to, you know, innovate and, and do what we do best here and then move our manufacturing to those areas and sell the cars in those, those particular regions. Let's have our audience question. Yes, sir. Hello, and thank you all for coming and joining us today at noon. I know you might all be wanting some lunch by this point. I would like to ask, as someone who's been deferring a car purchase precisely in hopes of seeing this transformation, the fact that all of you are here together with us today discussing this is very heartening. My concern is that there are a lot of people my age and younger who, because of the current economic climate in the U.S., have been hindered from both making new car purchases and having to look at the sticker prices we've been discussed today much more closely than before and where those upfront prices, despite the fuel savings, are still a deterrent. So I would like to hear your perspectives on the car buying market, i.e. the consumer end of the equation, under this economic climate, now that we finally have these breakthroughs coming onto the market. Still, still a price premium. For uh, absolutely. Well, and cars overall are expensive uh, anyway. So the biggest market in a bad economy is for used cars, and we want people buying new cars. Um, so 
uh, how are we going to get there? I think we have to be looking at incentives at the purchase side of things. California stepped up to the plate. The legislature approved tax incentives for people, and they match up with federal tax incentives to the point where you can write the cost of the sticker price down by about $10,000 uh, on one of these vehicles. That's a hefty subsidy yep. coming directly out of the pocketbook, in effect. And we've been accused of uh, subsidizing wealthy people because they're the only ones who can buy these cars. We also need to make efforts to find ways to get them into the zip car market or equivalent car sharing kinds of programs, get them out there into places where you don't have to be affluent to be able to start to drive an electric vehicle. And some of those car sharing services are buying electrics or volts, et cetera. Roland Wong? I think, um, you know, stepping back from this issue of immediate affordability, when you look at car sales in the United States and you look at what drives the large, some, some cases, large fluctuations in ability, ability for people to buy a car, it's really about the state of the economy. And the state of the economy is highly connected to the price of oil. And so what we do have as a, as a nation, we do have a choice over the next 20 years, the clean car program that Mary Nichols is talking about, as well as the Obama administration is in the process of adopting, um, over the next 20 years, that will keep $350 billion of our wealth in this country. It will reinvest that money back into U.S. manufacturing. It will insulate us against price uh, swings in the oil market, which we know are coming. It will make our economy stronger so that young people and all every American can have a job, a healthy economic climate to afford these, these vehicles. Let's have our next audience question. I want to thank you very much for an informative discussion and especially to thank Climate One. As the 2001 owner of a wonderful Prius, which is still running, uh, I'm all for it. My question is for you, Mr. Dalton. Who funds Climate One? Uh, Climate Works Foundation, uh, the Goldman Fund, number of uh, corporations, General Motors. We also get some money from Chevron. It's all on our website, Thank mainly you. foundations, as well as ticket buyers and members of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, I'm uh, Ron Grimban with um, CalCars. Um, have volt number uh, 24. Thank you. And... Uh, <laughs> which is a wonderful vehicle. Uh, you really have to sell how, how much fun these things are to drive. Um, but my question is, has to do with, um, you know, these vehicles, um, passenger cars have a lifetime of on the order of 15 years, and uh, larger vehicles often longer than that, which means that if we start getting, say, 15% really um, off oil, in 2025, of new vehicles, it's a long time before we start getting off um, oil in our fleets. You know, with over 25 million, I believe, in California and 250 million in the country and a billion in the world. Is there, can anybody see there as a possibility to do something with vehicles that are on the road? Good question. There are some people out there advocating. I believe Andy Grove was an uh, advocate of this at one point, retrofitting the existing fleet, which gets into all sorts of complicated issues about uh, violating warranties, et cetera. But, you know, it takes 17 years. It's a long time, this turnover of the fleet, right? The good news is is that, that the vehicle fleet now is probably the oldest it's been in quite a while. 
So there's going to be an appetite for that fleet to get idled and replaced with newer technology. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, ma'am. Hi. I'm a big fan of e-cars, and I would love to buy one, but I'm still saving money for it. I have a question about how the government supports this program. And clean energy has enjoyed a lot of support from the government and, therefore, financial assistance from taxpayers in the form of rebates, subsidies, or favorable loans. And I just wonder, um, how do you see that for clean cars to come about? How much financial assistance do you see will be needed from taxpayers for your vision to come to life? Well, right now, the way we're financing the incentives is through um, a uh, surcharge on vehicle registrations, which I think is a very fair way to do it. So somebody buys a new gasoline car, a small share of the registration fee for that car is going into a fund which can be used in part for these kinds of customer rebates for the cleaner, more efficient vehicles. Some of the money also goes to programs that are pioneering research and development and deployment of new clean fuels. So the state as a whole um, is investing in this, and they're doing it through um, funds that are collected basically from gasoline sales and from uh, the registration charges on, on new cars. And um, we're going to continue down that path, I think, as long as we as long as we possibly can, because of the same reasons that others have alluded to, which is that we think it's good for the economy as a whole of California. If California benefits from being seen as a place where companies want to locate because uh, they think this is a good market for cleaner, more efficient technologies, more companies locating here, more venture capital, more jobs, more people able to buy cars, it's a virtuous circle. And that's uh, that's the direction that we're headed in. Hang on a second. Chris, Chris Paulson, are, you know, is CODA in California for the reasons Mary just said? Absolutely. The the California worker is the world's most innovative worker. You know, we have centered ourselves in Los Angeles uh, because that we can get the best people in the world to work on really cool stuff. Um, we're focused on on designing new technology that will solve a lot of these problems. You know, I, I think it's a really good question about can we do it fast enough. Uh, I think the constraint is going to be partly our ability to, to make the cars and get it done. Uh, we see demand that far exceeds supply in the short term. Chris Paulson is VP of Strategy at, at Coda Automotive. Our other guests today at Climate One are Mary Nichols from the California Air Resources Board, Roland Huang from NRDC, and Shad Balt from General Motors. Roland Huang, did you have something to add on? Yeah, just very uh, uh, quickly, I think it's useful to put the, the question of how much government support behind clean energy in the context of how much there is currently government support behind fossil fuel industries. So you're talking about how much money the federal government and, say, state of California has put into supporting clean energy. You're probably talking about, we'll call it several billions of dollars. But when you look at how much money that's been put in historically into supporting oil, just the oil industry and, and, and subsidizing the exploration and production of oil industry in this country, you've got to multiply what we support by, for clean energy by a factor of 100, if not more. So really, the question is, what are our priorities as a country? We know we can do this, make this shift, but what are our priorities? The, 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 the money's there. The wealth is there. The question is, how do we prioritize this as a country? Let's have our next audience question. Yes, uh, for Mr. Wang, uh, it, this is quite a ways off that this is really going to be 
finalized and be in the market and be, and be regulation. The In the interim, is the issues of PISA ethanol technologies important, and could that be a significant opportunity to help transition us and get into the reductions that are necessary to meet the goals at hand? Yeah, great question. Thank you for that. Um, but first of all, um, the standards that we're, ta- we're focused on right now in this discussion is, uh, is 2025 54.5 MPG. But it's also important to understand that um, today, in your auto dealership today, you can go out there and buy a more fuel-efficient vehicle in large part due to the first round of standards, which start model year 2012, model year 2016. In January, the highest new vehicle fuel economy, highest ever in the history of the United States, which should be higher, is 23 miles per gallon, but it's about 15% higher than it was four, four or five years ago. You're at more choices, whether you buy a pickup truck or whether you buy a crossover utility vehicle or a minivan or a, or a, a compact car. Every vehicle is getting more fuel efficient thanks to the regulations. The future standards out to 2025 will allow the auto industry to take a longer-term view and invest in the new technologies like the electric vehicle drivetrains. Ethanol, as long as it's made from, a, a, from, from sustainable sources, corn ethanol, NRDC does not believe is a sustainable source, ethanol and, and, and electricity um, and other f- uh, forms of non-petroleum fuel can have a role and should have a role um, in the future if, if we get the rules right and we make sure that the electricity and the, the, the ethanol are produced from clean sources. Sometimes, you know, I just have to say we, um, we approach this topic from a lot of different directions, and everybody's interested in new technology. Of course, we have to be interested in the state of the economy as a whole, but the metric that we're using here is really one of pollution, um, in order to define the kinds of fuels and the kind of vehicles that we want in this market. It's the cleanest cars and the cleanest fuels, the ones that emit the least amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases throughout their entire life cycle. And that's why we're not putting a lot of emphasis on trying to get more ethanol per se into the market or more of any other alternative fuel because what we're trying to do is overall reduce the amount of greenhouse gases and that means pushing down on the whole system. But again, we're seeing resistance even to lowering the carbon content of ethanol. We're still, you know, we're fighting over that one with some of the Midwestern uh, corn growers. So it's a, this term that you've got uh, for this dialogue, climate one, you know, is still uh, not that easy to get everybody to go along with. <laughs> got to get him in the room. Okay, let's have our next audience question. Pete Cooper from Better Place. Um, thinking about the glass is half full for a second. If I was an integrated oil company or you were an integrated oil company, what would you do to take advantage of the clean car mandate? Where, what are some of the pain points that it could solve for me as an integrated oil company? So what is, how, if we turn it around and do what you said, look at it from a different angle, what are some benefits that I could gain as an oil company? If I were an oil company, what I would do would be to come to the state of California and say, I'll supply you um, at my cost just for, you know, some modest sum of money uh, with all the hydrogen that you need to get this market started in return for a, let's say, 15-year license to be the exclusive hydrogen supplier for motor vehicle fuels for the state of California. 
I think I make money off of that deal. Unfortunately, I don't have an oil company, so <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> Let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Jeff Hoffman. Uh, I work with a, an EV startup in Silicon Valley called Clean Speed Technologies. We're uh, about three years away from being Coda, we hope. Uh, I'm also a former journalist who covered the Zev Wars of the 1990s, so I have a little bit of context for this. First, I have a comment. Greg, did you ask anybody from PG&E to come? Uh, we've done lots of programs here about smart meters, smart cars. Uh, we did ask someone from Toyota to participate today. Uh, they declined to participate. We're happy that these companies Is did. I, we've had them here other times. I'd just um, be curious to see what PG&E is thinking about uh, this this new mandate uh, and how they plan to get renewable energy into batteries. Um, but my main question is for Mary Nichols, and I, I wanted to ask, when is CARB going to set up the vehicle, the California vehicle-to-grid mandate? Why not tw- uh, 25% connected cars by 2025? And okay, when are you going? Connected cars. Connected Thanks. cars. It's a great idea. This summer we're doing uh, a uh, conference that uh, DOE is helping to sponsor around that very issue of the vehicle-to-grid. We agree with you. That's where it all needs to go. My understanding, and I'm not the technical expert on this, is that there still are some issues that aren't just policy issues but are some actual technical issues about how you make it work. But uh, we agree with you that the future needs to be a connected uh, future batteries are great storage device, and they'll be a big help in regulating the load and making it possible to get more renewables into the system. Just a quick follow-up, if I could. Uh, if my argument would be that if we don't do it in California, that Jiangsu Province and Guangdong Province are going to lead vehicle-to-grid technology, and we're going to be buying it from them. That's my comment. Thanks. Thank you. Shadbolt? Yeah, I, I would just I would like to add that we will probably hopefully get there before there's a mandate, a need for a mandate that this, this has tremendous promise to, to ha- deal with a whole bunch of issues. So ideally, we'll just get there before we're forced to. It's complicated stuff. I have to admit, I was a little surprised. I just bought a 240 charger for my garage from General Electric, and it says not smart grid enabled. I thought, why not? Isn't that, I mean, I, I gotta, they want me to buy another one in a couple of years when, it, well, when, it, when the smart grid comes along. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, uh, Mike Harrigan from City Car Share. We already talked about car sharing up here a few seconds ago. Proud to say that City Car Share has seven plug-in electric vehicles in service today. Um, and uh, as many of you know, we service the, we're the local small scrappy uh, nonprofit <laughs> car sharing company versus one of the other big companies that we won't talk about here. My question doesn't relate to that at all, but I just want to. But it was fun. Okay. <laughs> um, my question is, as we see more and more uh, cars getting uh, fuel from alternative sources besides oil, what are we going to start doing about uh, the taxes that help uh, build our road infrastructure and so forth around the state and around the nation. And I believe has, has any thought gone into that sort of thing? Well, some states, Washington's already toying with uh, EV tax, which I think makes people like Code Automotive probably unhappy. Yeah. I think Paulson. that the uh, to start with, uh, that there's a small enough, and, and although I think it's very rapidly growing, a small enough market where that's a problem that we can, I think, solve in the, in the future. Um, but long term, I think there's, there's opportunities to tax usage, I guess. Um, but for an electric so tax per mile, something yeah, like some, that. Yeah. But the uh, I think today the challenges are much more about getting the technology in place and then solving that type of issues. Chad Bolt? Yeah, we killed that. GM killed that bill in Washington last year when they tried to pull this stunt, and we're going to fight it again this year. Um, it's it's too early. 
for taxing EVs, especially when on one hand you're giving incentives to purchase, don't think that the consumer is not going to know that there's a special fee for buying an EV. Yeah. So it's, it's just too early. Fair share at some point, but not yet. Not yet. Roland Huang? Yeah, I think the key is I, agree, I completely agree with Shad. We have to kind of understand where the technology is right now. Uh, we believe that all vehicles should pay their, their fair share of, of road usage fees. Um, that's, that's absolutely true. The problem that we're having right now is that because of gridlock in Washington, there's an inability for Congress to move forward with doing what it needs to do, which is, is, which is to fill a huge gap in our highway trust fund. That's, that's the problem. The solution is not to penalize emergent technologies like electric vehicles. If you put a, a per, I can go through the numbers later, but per vehicle, uh, average per mile charge onto an electric vehicle, what you're doing is essentially penalizing the electric vehicle compared to, say, a high-mileage gasoline vehicle. The current system, which is a gas tax approach, actually does a twofer. One, it funds highway infrastructure. And second, what it does is it encourages fuel efficiency. By doing it on per-vehicle-mile basis, average per-vehicle-mile basis, like there have been some proposals, what you're doing is penalizing electric vehicle adopters. Shad Bolch, I believe the CEO of General Motors has called for a higher gas tax. Is that right? He mentioned that. He did. Yeah, I mean, I think the number one driver of helping us... Twice in one day. The, one of the number one enablers for getting us off of petroleum is to make it more expensive. That is what will drive people to electrics or some other alternative source. That I think was that the idea behind the carbon tax, you know, once yeah. upon a time. And uh, once the cap-and-trade system comes into effect at the national level, which I believe it will if we don't get a carbon tax, one way or another, that's a source of revenue which can go to filling the holes that we need, literally, in our road system. Let's have our next audience question. Oh, hi, Annie Nodoff with NRDC. And I, uh, you know, one of the things that's allowed California to move forward is the bipartisan support for having climate policy and clean cars. Uh, they had a Republican who voted for the clean car bill and another Republican who was brave in Congress and even voted for the, con- the House uh, climate bill and had governors of both parties move it forward. Now that we see uh, everyone together on uh, this issue, I wonder if GM might have um, some comments on do you, what do you think the prospects are for any bipartisan cooperation at the federal level to move clean cars, clean energy, and climate policy forward? Well, from our perspective, there's a tremendous appetite to make that happen. As, as Roland alluded to earlier, our former Vice Chairman Bob Lutz, who's a staunch Republican, came out against uh, those in his party for, you know, tr- doing what they did with, with the Volt. So I think um, there's going to have to be an appetite for that sort of discussion to happen in, in order to move those sorts of policies forward. I think that's uh, – we don't have any more audience questions. Um, let's just wrap it up by talking a little bit about – we haven't talked about natural gas, sort of the silent fuel here. Um, there's a big uh, supply now of natural gas. It's not something that is in this current mix. Mary Nichols, is that uh, – you know, why doesn't natural gas get any love right now? <laughs> well, I think they get, actually get quite a lot of love. Uh, there's uh, – there, there are natural gas vehicles out there, both um, in the passenger car fleet and in the heavy-duty fleet. 
uh, like any other different fuel, it requires its own particular set of um, stations and a distribution system. It works especially well for centrally fueled fleets, and it's doing very well in that market because the price is good. Uh, a number of businesses that operate uh, whole fleets of uh, cars or trucks, delivery trucks, etc., do use natural gas. Uh, I think the issue for the future has been, and I know there was an initiative on the ballot on this uh, a couple of years ago that uh, T. Boone Pickens was sponsoring. Why didn't that succeed? You know, why don't we sort of embrace natural gas as the solution? And I think the answer to that is that uh, it, it has a place in the market, but it doesn't in and of itself solve all the problems that we're talking about in terms of uh, security, in terms of meeting our air and uh, other environmental problems. And so while we can give it lots of uh, pats on the back as a fuel for today, when we're trying to do uh, programs or come up with um, policies that are really going to make the transformation happen, Natural gas is just one of a number of different good fuels that are out there, but not the not the ultimate solution. Perhaps more of a solution for big trucks than passenger vehicles. Well, definitely that would be the first priority. Uh, we're already seeing uh, at the ports and in other uh, major distribution centers, people going to CNG and LNG because they can see some very significant fuel economy improvements there and definitely helps with our localized air quality problems, too. We have to end it there. I want to thank all of our guests today at Climate One, Shad Bulge from General Motors, Roland Huang from NRDC, Mary Nichols, Chair of the California Air Resources Board, and Chris Paulson from Coda Automotive. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you.